Welcome to the Artipop Podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood. But also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general. To empower you and all the women around you to trust their intuition. I've asked a journalist whose work I love Kaira van Wijk to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. I hope you're with me. Please enjoy. Hope you're all having a beautiful day. Thanks for tuning in. This time we're honored to have Gabrielle Bernstein on for a frank and insightful conversation. You might very well know Gabrielle as a thought-provoking motivational speaker spiritual leader and best-selling author of nine books, including The Universe Has Your Back. She co-hosted the Guinness World Records' largest guided meditation with Deepak Chopra, and she's on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list. Fifteen years ago, she started hosting intimate conversations in her New York City apartment. Now she's empowering hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. Gabrielle has come a long way herself, healing from addiction and sexual abuse. She's always been extremely open about the challenges she faces, amongst them also infertility and postpartum depression. In this episode, she talks about her spiritual journey, the collective and spirituality, stigma and shame around postpartum depression and medication, becoming and being a mother both to herself and her baby boy, Oliver, going through IVF, and more. Well, here's Gabrielle. Yeah, how are you this morning? I'm really good. How are you doing? Yeah, really good, really good. What do your days actually usually look like? Um, well, I have a two-year-old, so I wake up to him every morning, mm-hmm. and he kind of dictates my morning. His name is Oliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I usually get to my desk around 8.30 and just start jumping in. I've been um, planning a podcast of my own, which is being coming out at the end of April. So I've been really uh, actively recording things and producing. And so there's been quite a bit of uh, activity over here at Gabby HQ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all good stuff. It's all exciting stuff. Yeah. So nice. I'm excited for your podcast as well. I'm always looking for new podcasts. So when is it going to be out? It's going to be out on April 26th and it's called Dear Gabby, where I workshop people, live callers that come in just off the cuff and we cover all kinds of serious topics to relationships, to mental illness, to sexual abuse, to really things that people don't talk about. We talk about on the show. So it's going to be really important and uh, heartfelt. Such a good idea also, because I feel there are are a lot of like interviews out there, but this is really talking to your audience directly also. That's right. That's right. Really interesting. So I wanted to start with asking you, how would you describe your daily spiritual practice? Like if you wake up in the morning or in the evening, and also do you ever involve your family like your son into this? I like that question. My daily spiritual practice is all throughout the day. So what I mean is, yes, there are specific touch points where I will sit down for a long long meditation or close my day with a prayer. But 
like they say in the 12 steps, it's about constant contact with a higher power. Mm -hmm. So I stay devoted and committed to being in that place of constant contact by connecting to where my feelings are, connecting to my energy, connecting to my intentions in every moment, noticing when I might be out of what I would say is alignment, out of alignment with my spiritual connection, and then doing whatever it takes to get back into alignment. So for instance, I was feeling a little off this morning and I had about 15 minutes before my next call. So I sat and I did a meditation. And so it's not like I can only meditate at noon when I've scheduled my meditation. I can sit down and change and adjust and and tap into that source whenever I notice the the disconnect from it. Mm -hmm. So I like to probably say it's it's not a spiritual part of my life. I live a spiritual life. Yeah. As it relates to my son, I think that the best way to say that I bring spirituality into his life is by teaching him to honor and respect his feelings and to give voice to his feelings in the best way that he can, mm -hmm. and also to not limit him as much as possible. So uninterrupted play, which i it's hard for me because I always want to be like, try this, try that, but really letting him be in the flow of inspiration because that's what it means to be spiritually connected. Mm -hmm. So really allowing him to be in that flow. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And has he taught you anything also about spirituality? Like has he changed maybe also the healer that you are yourself in a way? Definitely. Yes. He's uh, taught me so much about presence and being in the present moment and when you have a two-year-old, you don't have much choice but to be present. He'll grab the phone out of your hand, right? And say, stop. He sometimes will grab my chin and move my head over and look me in the eye if if he notices I'm not fully committed to him. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, that's probably the greatest benefit that I've really received spiritually from my son is being uh, having no choice but to be present, fully, fully present, and to take advantage of that as a amazing opportunity to strengthen my connection. To really be in the moment, to really connect with him. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And for the background, like all of your followers will know, of course, but um, could you describe where did your spiritual awakening start? And I was just wondering also, were there like some really defining moments for you that, that you feel like that really led you on your path? There have been very specific defining moments, yes. Uh, my spiritual path began as a child. My mom would have me come visit ashrams with her. I was named by the gurus. I was sitting in the meditation rooms with my mom. I was taught how to meditate at a young age and began my own devotional meditation practice when I was 16 years old because I was actually struggling with depression at the time and the meditation was the one thing that worked for me. And I turned my back on that belief system and those practices in my early 20s when I went out into the world and started a PR firm and thought I was really cool because I was representing nightclubs and really ultimately became uh, really disconnected from that spiritual source, even though I never forgot that it was there. I got uh, severely addicted to drugs and alcohol. And by the time I was 25, I got sober by the grace of my spiritual connection. I got sober and I got back into my spirituality. It was through my sobriety that, that I started to really get grounded in my spiritual faith again. 
and then begin to develop my own practices and the practices that I was studying to become the framework through which I would become a teacher. And I really took the spiritual awakening that I had and translated it for new seekers. Now it's 15 years later, I have nine books that I've written and uh, years and years of speaking behind me because I've been in the devotional commitment of really helping people crack open to their own spiritual connection. There's been other moments of hitting bottom that have cracked me open even more. And there's a gorgeous quote that I love to share, which is Rumi's quote, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Mm. When you have a moment of hitting a bottom, it's a good thing because you have a choice in that moment to crack open more, to awaken more, to move deeper into your spiritual foundation. And I'm grateful for that. And there have been many other moments along the way that really helped me crack open to that. One of which that's very important for your listeners was I was uh, I was gifted, I'm going to say now, with postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And I say gifted now because while it was the dark, absolute darkest experience of my life, suicidal depression, insomnia, agoraphobia, anxiety, it was the greatest awakening for me. Mm. And it got me on the greatest, most sustainable healing path. So sometimes we have to be grateful for the things that cause us the most discomfort because they reveal to us our greatest opportunity for growth. And it's interesting because I feel we're always like really scared to crash, you know, but then it can actually teach you a lot. And then, of course, to talk about postpartum depression, um, was there anything when it happened to you that you were like, oh, I wish someone would have told me more about this or, yeah, something that you would like to share with someone who maybe hasn't been diagnosed with it yet but kind of feels like, Ooh, I feel kind of off, like what's going on here, you know? I wish that there had been a lot more conversation about it. I wish that there had been particularly more conversation about the medicated paths that we can get on. I obviously come from the spirituality and wellness space, and I frankly feel as though the idea of getting medicated was really shamed and frowned upon in my industry. Mm -hmm. And it really took five months of my life away because of that shame mm. and five months of my son's first days of life from connecting and bonding and attaching properly because I was too ashamed to admit that I had mental illness and that I was having a biochemical condition and I was too ashamed to accept that I needed to have psychiatric intervention. And so I could have actually gotten better much faster, had a tremendous amount of relief but there was not enough conversation around what it means to be on an antidepressant while you're breastfeeding and the the you know the data and the studies and the the stigma being released because so many women will go will go way months years without a proper diagnosis because of the shame because of the lack of education around what our resources are and what our options are as pregnant women, as breastfeeding women. But the most important thing as a breastfeeding woman and as a pregnant woman is that you are not in a depressed, anxious state because that energy is far more affecting the child than maybe a, a slight dose of, of a, a medication that might come through in breast milk. You know, and there's data on that. It's not just, you know, Gabby Bernstein's word. I'm not a doctor, but there's data. And that data was, 
I feel hidden and and it, 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 if you you know if you open up to your psych, psychiatrist or if you open up to a therapist or if you open up to a OBGYN, maybe you'll be lucky enough to have somebody tell you the truth. But in our daily day to day life, there's just a tremendous amount of shame and stigma around anything related to mental illness, and particularly the the medicated paths to get us out of the bottom that we may end up in. I also find it so interesting what you're saying. Like sometimes to me also, it feels a little bit black and white. Like you're either natural and spiritual or you go the medical route. Like how do you feel about that? Like I feel like it should be way more, you know, it can help each other, I guess. I'm going to curse on your show. I think I think the black and white is a bunch of fucking bullshit. Hmm. I think that it is dangerous. I think it is shaming. I think it is, uh, in some cases, takes lives when you're talking about postpartum depression. Yeah. And I won't stand for it. I was brought up homeopathic. I was brought up never taking antibiotics unless it, I don't think I ever even, I never fulfilled a prescription until I fulfilled my antidepressant for my my medication to get to get on the right track mentally. So I came from a world where I had functional medicine doctors and I you know practiced hypnobirthing and I was much more interested in what I was eating than the medical path. But that was actually that's all fine and good. And there's a great benefit to all of that. But it's also what got in the way of my overall well-being at the time when I needed medical intervention most. So you cannot, it can't be black or white. Mm-hmm. Melatonin is not going to help a woman with an, with a anxiety disorder because of you know get her to sleep at night. It's just not going to work, right? Or you know, drinking drinking tea or whatever. It's not going to work. So there, the the disconnect, the black and white, as you said, is dangerous. It blocks these wellness women from getting the resources that they need to have a whole complete recovery. I've witnessed so many of my friends in mine in the wellness space postpartum, hair falling out, anxious, shaking, depressed, skinny, like so thin, so frail, not sleeping, but without any contemplation of the fact that there's another way. And I believe that God works through all forms of medication and all forms of doctors. God works through the, the the healer that is doing Reiki on you, and God is equally working through the psychiatrist that can prescribe you Zoloft. It's it's there's no difference, and we have to be open and receptive to the guidance that's available to us. I like I said, I lost five months of my life as a result, and, and the most precious five months of my life being with my son because I was too black and white about it. Mm-hmm. I was too stuck in a corner of of shame and and wellness, you know, how perfect can you be in your wellness world to admit that I was having a mental health condition, a biochemical condition that required psychiatric support. Yeah. And it's so important like you said, you really have to take care of yourself first because otherwise you can't even take care of the other as well. And how did your partner actually deal with it? I can imagine because you're like so close, there's this, this infant there. Like, how did he deal with it? Because I'm sure he could see it in you. He was extremely traumatized by that. And I think that he may, he's just starting to get back to a, a nervous system state where he trusts in my steadiness more, you know, now because I'm very steady. Mm-hmm. But it was a 
extremely traumatizing for him. He, we work together as well. So it's not only am I the mother, but I'm the, you know, source of our, our brand and our business. And, you know, there's so much wrapped up in this for him. And, and it was terrifying, you know, night after night going into his room screaming, I haven't slept in three days, you know, which sends you into psychosis, frankly, Mm -hmm. you know, on mother's day saying, I want to kill myself in the back of the car on mother's day. And I, you know, I'm so sad thinking about this, but I, I want someone to hear my story so that they know that it's not just suicidal depression that needs support. It could be l- like low, low-grade insomnia, maybe panic attacks, uh, obsessive thoughts. Some of this can be can be managed or uh, worked with with supplements and whatnot. But the second that you notice something is getting off track. Talk to your OBGYN mm-hmm. if you're if you have the privilege of having a psychiatrist work with a psychiatrist, get on the right track because it does it's it's debilitating for the woman first and foremost. It's debilitating for the partner, and it does have an effect on the child. You know, I'm consciously every single day re-establishing the attachment bond between myself and my son because there's no way that he didn't pick up the energy of what was happening even at three months old, seeing me screaming and crying on the floor. How do you practice that, the reattachment with him? Reattaching with my son today is about really being present, as we mentioned, being conscious of my energy when I'm around him. Because children are always co-regulating. They're always picking up what's around them. So my son, Oliver, can feel the energy of others. Like if I say, so-and-so is coming over, he might just put his hand on his heart and go, ah, ah, because that person's energy is effect, affects him. Oh, wow. Even saying their name, he can, he'll show me, ah, ah, I don't want that. Um, if, if my husband and I are arguing around him, he, he, you know, just starts, he'll immediately start cleaning mm-hmm. because it's their way of saying, I have to fix something. And that's heartbreaking, right? Yeah. They think it's their fault. So we have to consciously be co-regulating, making sure that our energy is clean around our children so that they feel safe and secure and seen and soothed, as uh, Dan Siegel would say, the the four S's. But we have to be conscious, conscious of the energy. It's not just about our actions or our words. It's the energy that we bring into the environment because an, a child will grow up with an anxiety a, a chronic anxiety because of a chronic anxiety in the parent. Mm-hmm. And so I, the way I make up for it now after having lived that way in the first five months is to be steady around him, to be at ease as much as possible. You know, last night I was mad at my husband about how we've been giving my son too much milk and I'm like freaking out in the kitchen. So I'm not always perfect, but to do my best to be steady, to be um, to hold him in his feelings when he's having a meltdown, to not shut it down, to be present with him and hold him and remind him that he's not alone and that everybody has a hard time and that babies, um, it's hard to be a baby because there's so much, that, so many big feelings and it's hard to express them and you don't have all the words and just be really so respectful of his feelings and emotions and recognizing that my energy has a direct effect on his well-being. This actually also makes me think about during the pandemic and during the lockdown, we've all been together, like with our families, with children. And for some people, I think for a lot of people, actually, it it just, um, you know, tension can heighten a little bit. Even if you don't want to, you have to work. And do you have any tips for that maybe as well? Yeah. 
do your best. Forgive yourself. It's not, it's not about being perfect. It's about comeback rate. I think my therapist put it like this. It's like, I can't remember the exact percentages, but it's about the repair much more than how perfect you are. Because you're going to fuck up as a parent. You're going to be yelling at your husband in the kitchen. You're going to be having a meltdown because it's COVID. You're going to have all these moments. But what do you do after the moment? How do you repair it with your child? And the repair is what matters most because it's important for our children to see that we're human, that we have all kinds of emotions, and that we have resilience. Because if they witness us in our resilience, then they become resilient. And so what do you do in that moment when when you're yelling at your spouse and then you feel bad about it? You go up to your son and you 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 say, you know, mommy and daddy were upset about this and we're working it out now. And let me show you how mommy and daddy make up. And you, you know, I always will go and kiss my husband and show my son how I kiss him and you know, just just really express to him that we can have big emotions and that we can resolve them. And the repair, you know, even saying, I'm sorry to a toddler. I'm so sorry that mommy wasn't safe in that moment. I'm going to be safe right now. Speaking to the child like an adult, because let me tell you something, a toddler understands everything. And of course, that 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 can be something that you start to practice as early as in, as infancy because it's just about the adult getting into the practice. And an infant actually can hear the tone of your voice. So let's say you were fighting and fighting. You can repair with an infant by saying, so sorry, sweetheart. Mommy was upset. I'm going to love and give you energy that's so wonderful right now and soothe you with my tone of voice and co-regulate with you right now and we can be together and we're okay now. Repair, repair, repair. It's all about the repair. And you've also been very open, of course, that it took you some time um, before you were able to conceive, mm-hmm. a couple of years after your marriage, I think you said. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really interesting, you mentioned on another podcast, you had to learn to mother yourself first before becoming a mother. And I would love for you to yeah, share some more about that. It took me three years to conceive my son. And that was actually one of the greatest gifts I've ever received with all the heartache and sadness of not being able to conceive and feeling like I was there was something wrong with me or whatever. Because that journey was a was a beautiful journey of surrender and a journey, as you said, of learning how to mother myself before I could be a mother. Mm-hmm. The practices that I applied in my life to really let go, allow, and focus on my own well-being and focus on how I could get to the best, most healthy, most mentally well state before I could conceive was nothing short of a miracle. And in those three years, while I had heartbreak because I wasn't getting what I want when I wanted it, I learned the true meaning of surrender. And I learned the true practice of surrender, so much so that I wrote a chapter about it. I did an Oprah talk on it. Surrender became something that I mastered. Because if there's anything that you have to learn how to surrender in life, it's your conception journey, right? I mean, there's so many different things that happen along the way and blocks. And some people may have it easy and then they get postpartum or whatever it is. There's always something. And surrender is is one of the most beautiful lessons that being a mother can offer us. Yeah. So when you think you surrendered, you have to surrender even more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And could you name like a very specific example of how you weren't mothering yourself before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you really learned yourself to do that. Well, I was pushing myself. I was, I was uh, living with unresolved PTSD, and as a result, that was uh, 
being lived in a chronic state of hyperarousal, constantly controlling things and forcing things to be, and just going in and out of like meltdown, back into spiritual awakening, meltdown, back into spiritual awakening. And I have a lot of compassion for myself at that time because for many of those years, I didn't even know why because I had a dissociated trauma that I had unresolved. But the but the the overriding myself, I think, was the biggest way that I was not uh, not caring for myself. And so as I started to witness that behavior and begin to care for myself more by speaking up for myself, by creating healthier boundaries, by caring for my well-being, by making my um, my my self-care the highest priority, those were all the ways that I allowed my adult resource self to step in and begin to care for those younger parts of myself that were so dissociated and exiled. So I I I had to start to take what I was able to recognize and then establish and connect to the highest self, my spiritual self, my source of love within me, and let that part of me lead. I've been in the constant development of that relationship, of letting that, that higher self lead. And uh, it's one of the greatest gifts I could ever give because give myself because when I notice myself activated in a child part of myself, I know who to turn to. Mm-hmm. I can turn to my adult self and I can mother myself back. And so it started right before, you know, the three years leading up to my son. And it's a, a practice that continues and continues and continues. Were you actually aware that you had that trauma or did you kind of like store it away? Like you didn't want to look at it or? I actually dissociated from it. So mm-hmm. I remembered being sexually abused as a child, but I didn't remember it until I was 36 years old. Wow. Oh, wow. But it's, yeah. But with a, with a childhood trauma, often someone can dissociate. It's actually you know, a beautiful thing that the brain can literally move it somewhere else because it's too terrifying to remember. Yeah. But what it does is that while the memory is lodged away, the body still remembers, the nervous system still remembers. You live every single day feeling afraid of life. Yeah. And so it was only until I fully recovered that memory that I was able to begin the actual true healing and restoring of my well-being. And that was well into my career as a spiritual teacher, well into my sobriety, that I really got to work about really healing the root cause of the condition. And trauma also, of course, really stores in the body, doesn't it? Exactly. It's a somatic experience, and we have to address it on the somatic level. It can't just be talk therapy. While that's excellent, we have to address the body, particularly you know, if you want to conceive and you're blocked, you know, go to therapy and talk about what's happening energetically. Yeah. What's, what the, typically there's often energetic blocks that keep us from conception. It's a big one. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it's so important to think about that as well, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about as well is about hypnobirthing. Yes. And I'm really interested in this because yeah, it's actually, it's like totally new to me. So I would love for you to like explain it to someone who doesn't. Hypnobirthing is such a gorgeous practice of releasing fear around childbirth. Really through hypnosis, through meditation practices, through mantra, through affirmation, reprogramming your internal nervous system and internal conditioning. And so much so, it goes even as far to 
begin the journey of actually using different language rather than saying contraction, they'll say surge. Oh, right. So there's just different words around the, the delivery so that you can really, cause the power of words, the power of thoughts, visualization. I remember when I delivered my son, I put my hypnobirthing visualization images up on, uh, on, um, on a, uh, bulletin board in front of the bed. And I put, I put this image of the baby head down, hands to heart, belly, you know, in the right position coming through. And I had this other image of this, um, flower, which was the vision of the cervix opening and everything being, you know, perfectly set up. And while I, I, I labored until um, eight centimeters and then I took an epidural because I was about 24 hours in and I did not want to have a problem with them. Um, I didn't want to have a C-section. So I figured if I get the epidural, I'll be a little bit more rested and I can get the baby out. And so as I was pushing, I can't feel because I had this epidural, which by the way, back to natural versus not natural, I had the most epic epic, epic childbirthing experience because I got to get all the way to eight centimeters and feel God in my body and feel the presence of my body. And then at the very end, when I was being hit over the freaking body with a train, I could be at ease as I brought my son into the world. Yeah. Right. So it's like, there's the combination of the hypnobirthing. It's like, I still had a hypnobirth with people can have a hypnobirth, even if they're having a C-section. Oh, yeah. That's really important. It's not just about having a natural childbirth. Yeah. It's natural no matter what. It's natural no matter what. I want to take away the shame and the stigma around the medical intervention as well, because sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's by choice. Sometimes, you know, we have to push for and advocate for ourselves if we don't want to go down that path, but there's no wrong way. Mm -hmm. There's no wrong way. Get your baby out safely and be at the best place of ease that is is available to you. And if that means taking an epidural, if that means doing a C-section, whatever it is, just, just make sure that you don't, don't do something that is going to inadvertently traumatize yourself because you wanted to be a hero, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's my riff on that. But you know, I have a lot of opinions here. I've been talking a lot. But what I will say is that I'm birthing my son and I can't feel anything at this point. And my, my doctor is about to do an episiotomy and all the nurses are like holding their breath. And I'm like, one more push. I had, um, I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Aviva Ram. She's like a, a beautiful doctor. Mm -hmm. and she was my midwife. Oh, wow. One of my best friends, a midwife. And then my acupuncturist was there as my doula. And I had, I gave birth in the country. So I, I had, I was the only person in the maternity ward. It was only like six bedroom ward. I was the only one there with these beautiful rolling hills, six nurses, Aviva Ram, my, 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 my acupuncturist, my doctor, my husband. It was the most beautiful moment. The, the song, the Jai Jagdish song, uh, Hallelujah was playing. And he's about to give me an episiotomy because the guy's like, you know, listen, the, you got like, you know, we got to get this baby out. And Aviva looks at him and she goes, can we just have one more push? And then what I did is I looked at that visualization, that image on the wall of the baby perfectly positioned coming out of the body. And I just visualized and I visualized and I, and I, you know, uh, it was the only way that I could actually allow my body to do what it needed to do was through visualization because I was completely numb. And that visualization practice is what allowed me to hypnobirth with an epidural and all the things that, that went along with that. And it was amazing because I didn't have to feel any of that pain. <laughs> but I had the experience of laboring. And it's, like, it's incredible. The mind is so strong. Your mind is so strong. And, you know, I think that there's, if I have a choice, I would love to labor the same way like I did last time if I have that choice. Or, you know, of course, going all the way naturally is a beautiful thing, but there's nothing wrong with 
giving yourself a break when you need it. <laughs> and when did you start preparing for the hypnobirthing? Like, do you do this like six months before or? Six months out. Yeah. So in the beginning of my second trimester, I started doing hypnobirthing. Um, I started by reading the book. I read the book. I was like, oh, this is the best book ever. And then I found a hypnobirthing specialist. Her, um, She's a coach. Her name is Mava, and she's just excellent. I can actually introduce you to her. You should interview her. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she's so devoted to it and so in love with it. And, and she did some privates with me and she hypnotized me and she guided me through the practices and the breath work and the affirmations. And I went as far as to create my own free affirmations for mamas. I'll give you the link for your show notes. Oh yeah, great. And it's created Gabby's hypnobirthing meditation. So um, I'd love to, it's really just like my affirmation meditation for mamas during, during labor and before. Yeah, that would be great. And I was also wondering like, what does spirituality actually mean to you? And also in what way do you feel that's like your idea of spirituality is really lacking in this day and age? Wow. What a big question. Well, to me, spirituality is who we are, Mm -hmm. but all of the worldly experiences that we have from childbirth to the present build up a wall against the spiritual presence and the truth of who we are. Being on a spiritual path is really merely a unlearning of the fears of the world and a remembering of the essence and the source of who we are. What's lacking in the world is the greater awareness of spiritual truth, the dialogue that so many other cultures lead with, right? There's so many cultures that lead with spirituality, that spirituality is the way that that spirit that the essence of spirit is is the path but we are the opposite it's like build particularly in the US and I can only speak for my culture but building up all of these pretenses and separate belief systems and 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 divisive ways and all of the ways that we make ourselves seem better or seem whatever it is all of that blocks the spiritual truth and source of who we are. And you speak also of more like indigenous cultures as well, where it's more about living with nature. Yes, exactly. Living with spirit that's all around, basically. And we're having human experiences, so we can't all be as wise as the indigenous cultures, and we can't all have that privilege in many ways of being able to have the spiritual foundation be set and be committed to. But what we have to do is live in this world, but think with the thoughts of spirit, not think with the thoughts of the human condition, because of course it's a merger. You have to be living in this human experience, but but the more we lean into that spiritual connection, the easier it is to be a human. And you, of course, have worked with, well, so many people from different walks of life. Do you feel like every human has a soul purpose? And yeah, what would you say, like, if someone is really like kind of lost about this purpose, if you say like people do have a soul purpose, each one of them, uh, like the key to you know, start living by it more? I do believe that every person, every human has a soul purpose. And the reason that we come here as a human in this form, the reason our soul, our spirit chooses to step into a body is to come here and claim and own and know the meaning of what love is to us, the the connection to that love and that source within us. Many people detour and disconnect from that source, but the same purpose lies within all of us, which is to come back to it. 
So what happens often in this human condition is that we begin to look for that love in all the wrong places. When I refer to love, I refer to God and, and spirit and universe, whatever you want to refer to it as. We look for it in the wrong places. We look for it in our credentials. We look for it in alcohol. We look for it in all these different outside sources. But being in this human condition, we all have the same purpose, which is to come back to that love. We don't always remember that purpose, though. And say someone who's now listening is maybe recognizing, like, I'm looking for it outside of myself. Like, how would you advise them to start unlocking that purpose for themselves? I would say... Stop focusing on what you think you need and start focusing on what brings you joy. Mm -hmm. Because whenever we're in a state of joy, we are in spirit. We are inspired. The more we live from that place of inspiration, the more love we cultivate within ourselves and the more energy shifts and the more we perceive the world through the lens of love. So stop focusing on what you think you need and start focusing on how you want to feel. Yeah. Are there actually any like maybe like daily practical tips that you would have specifically for like female listeners or even mothers, maybe something that you feel like talking to them that a lot of mothers these days face? Forgive yourself. Say nice things to yourself because you're the only one listening. Be extraordinarily, I want to say actually extreme compassion towards yourself. Because the more compassionate you are towards yourself, the more compassionate you can be for, towards your children. Practice radical self compassion. That can look like speaking back to yourself. You know, when I mess up, I can say, "Oh, Gabby, you know, you were just activated in that moment, or it's okay, you're doing well." Right before this interview, I had a phone call with some new partners that I have, and I was really unapologetic about asking for what I wanted. And then I got this kind of pushback from them. And so when I hung up, I noticed myself feel like, "Oh, did I ask for too much? Did I was I an asshole?" And then the only way to get myself out of that is, what would I say to my son? I said, Gabby, you have every right to ask for what you need. You have every right to ask for help. You have every right to be radically honest. You have, you know, you deserve to be supported. And the way to get support is to ask for support. And so it's just like that is my form of radical compassion because instead of beating myself up, up all day for maybe being, you know, to maybe for thinking I asked for too much, I com used compassion to remind myself that I can ask for far more than that. Yeah. And it's, it's like almost stepping outside of yourself, looking at yourself and being like, no, I deserve this. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And being unapologetic about what you need as a mother, uh, it, all those needs cannot get met if you don't believe that you're worthy of them. So starting off on starting off becoming more and more unapologetic about what you need to feel supported in whatever form that can come. Yeah. It's much easier for some people than others. Listen, to be honest, a lot of your listeners, they're in a demographic that has a lot of privilege. And so mm -hmm. it's easy for those of us listening and me even speaking and you as well to say, oh, you know, be unapologetic about what you need. Take that bath. There's obviously plenty of mothers out there that are not affording, um, you know, a carrier mm -hmm. <laughs> and not have the, the ability or the privilege of being able to ask for what they want. But what I want to speak to you right now is the woman who has that privilege and say, it's your responsibility to use the privilege that you have to be a source of light in the world so that you can be of higher service to other mothers who do not have that privilege. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. And it also comes back to the community spirit in that way that you can help yourself and help others. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I also wanted to ask you about this. Um, you have this idea around doing less while attracting more. Could you explain that? When we're in a frantic state of trying to make things happen, we're actually blocking our success. We're blocking the true speed with which things can get done. We're blocking inspiration. We make mistakes. We get in the way. When we slow down and we get more contemplated, more contemplative and we become more grounded, we align our energy with the source of the universe, the energy of spirit and inspiration. We all have access to that source of inspiration. It's what I call your super attractor power. It's my a recent book I wrote. And we connect to that power. And in that state of presence and power, we can do a lot less and attract a lot more. Hmm. And so it's about being more deliberate, more intentional, and more grounded in the actions that we take rather than just taking mindless actions that do not have a higher purpose. Yeah. Is it also about like forcing things less, just letting it happen, also surrender, maybe? When we force and we control and we push, we block and we waste time. Yeah. And then to you personally, I also wanted to ask you, how do you balance out your career, motherhood, time for yourself, and also, you know, your, your romantic uh, relationship? It's a lot of work to stay in sync with all these major corners Right now, I'm also not only running this big business that's about to, that's on the precipice of something major and have a two-year-old and a husband and all that goes along with that, but I'm also trying to conceive again. So I've been doing IVF for the past year and I'm on a good, I'm on a good track with it now, which is exciting, but it took a year, you know, a year and 17 pounds of weight gain and all the things that go along with that. But, um, but I'm actually proud to say that I'm actually on the right path now. Uh, but, um, not proud to say, just grateful to say, but I I would say that it, it, it is a lot to to be for all of us, for all mothers, and and listen, I'm a mother who has a tremendous amount of privilege because I've had a successful business and I have the financial support that I need, and I have a husband that's very supportive, and I have a nanny that's here every you know five days a week, and so I have everything that a mother could need to work and and care for and feel that privilege of support. Uh, and so I want to start by just being really clear about that because I think that it's almost like I, I, I never really complain about being off balance because I am so grateful for the support systems that I have the ability to access. Mm -hmm. And so I know that I can walk upstairs and my son is being cared for by the most incredible angelic human, right? And so that's no small thing. That's no small thing. And But at the same time, it's still hard, no matter what your circumstances are, if you've got a lot of big things happening in your life to make sure that you stay in sync. Um, so for me, it's it's about... Th regular therapy, regular uh, communication, regular commitment to my steadiness and well-being. If my nervous system and energy and thoughts are well, if I'm sleeping well, if I'm caring for myself, everything else will work out. It's like what you talked about in the beginning, having that spiritual practice. It doesn't really leave you. It's always there, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything um, you'd like to share also about your experiences with IVF that you feel 
maybe aren't that well known? I would. I'm really glad. This is actually probably one of the first times, this may be the second time I'm talking about my IVF journey. So I'm, and this is probably the perfect place to do it. So mm-hmm. I guess so many of your listeners have gone through it or maybe will go through it. So I'm 41 now. I, I did I did uh, two IUIs to conceive my son. So of course it was three years of not conceiving. And then I did a major gut cleanse and healing SIBO and then had two IUI rounds and got pregnant. So that's like a pretty amazing fertility story when it comes to intervention, right? That's rare. Like that's not an easy moment, but that happened for me. Um, then with the IVF, I thought, oh, well, you know, I can do another IUI. It'll work. And four rounds of IUI did not work. All of this happening in the pandemic, right? In the middle of a pandemic and driving an hour and a half each way to go back to the fertility center. And then I tried, started trying IVF and a bunch of different um, failed cycles because I would ovulate through the birth control pill. So I couldn't even do the cycle and just pretty much had been on some form of medication, hormonal medication from May until January. Mm. And gained a ton of weight, thankfully didn't have a lot of mood issues. But what I want to say is that now I'm on the right path and I, I don't want to give too many details because it, it is a private topic when, you know, once you get closer to, to actual conception and stuff. But I, I want to say that I'm on the right track now because I advocated for myself. My, I'm 41. I was getting a few eggs every month even with the highest doses of medication. And those, when I would get five eggs out, maybe three would fertilize, but none of them would go to blastocyst. And I kept hearing intuitively that your eggs are fragile and you have to lay off and you did so well with IUI and you're, you know, you are fertile, but you have to, you know, focus on the front runners and focus on the health of the eggs. And so I put my foot down and I I'm at a clinic that does not do low stimulation rounds, but I said, listen, I have insurance. My insurance is covering this. I can take this round and do less stim. Listen to me. And so I, I went on um, a human growth hormone for six weeks and, um, and I, um, I then did a very low stim round and uh, got what I needed. You know, so I'm gonna leave it at that because I'm still on the journey of you know getting ready to do the rest of this. Yeah. But um, but it worked, and it was one of those moments of saying to your doctor, "I told you so." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've had a lot of "I told you so" moments with this particular practice, um, and I'll be very sure to tell them the truth. And this is the same practice that helped me deliver my son. And there's many beautiful people there, but I'm going to be very expressive about what they can do differently because not every woman in this practice, very few of the women in this practice, um, it's more of a underprivileged area of where I go to for this practice. They don't have the, the medical, um, access that I have through my insurance. They're paying out of pocket. They're taking a second mortgage on their house. So to have someone not listen to them, to not be heard, to not have their full case taken into consideration just because there's one way that this clinic does it is not right. And so I'm going to speak on behalf of them and tell them the truth of what I my experience was so that I can advocate for these other women as I've been able to advocate for myself. I feel in the medical field, it's, it's oftentimes it's like this. You really have to advocate for yourself. You have to be involved. 
Yeah. And listen, it's a balance because as a woman in this case, like there was several months where I was like, let me just let my doctor do what he does all day and show me what to do. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. There was nothing wrong with that. You know, it's fine to step back and surrender and say, show me how to do this. But as soon as you start, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. And you start to feel intuition, you start to listen to that intuition, you have to act on it. You have to speak up. You have to advocate for yourself. And you are you are the CEO of your own body, as my friend Chris Carr says, right? You have to be the CEO of your own recovery, your own fertility, and do your research and and know your options. Finally, I also wanted to ask you, it's a bigger question, but you help move people in a positive direction, help move them forward, help move the collective forward, of course. Do you feel, if you look at this uh, moment in time, What do you think is humanity's biggest quest right now? And do you think that's also linked to spirituality? Humanity's biggest quest right now is to remember our spiritual nature. It's the only way that we can come together for greater healing of our planet, of our communities, of our political systems, our health and well-being. It's the only way. We have to become more connected and aligned with our spiritual foundation because it's the only thing that unifies us and or it's the main thing that unifies us. And so we've got to we've got to get serious about this now. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, we have to be, of course. Yeah, we have to be. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. I really love talking to you. Thanks so much. This was a very beautiful interview and I'm really grateful. Um, I think that you have such a gorgeous brand and I'm so grateful to have been able to do this with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being so open. Yeah, always. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to know more about Anna's idea of the new motherhood, head on over to the pilot episode where she explains more about this. Please hit subscribe if you'd like to be notified when a new episode is up. Also, we'd be very happy to get your feedback and possibly suggestions for new topics or interviewees. Hope this episode informed, inspired, open up your mind in some way. Until next time.